I thought, maybe we'll be there Tuesday night and we'll get to see the trophy presentation. And in my imaginations, I was thinking, um, yeah, I could imagine all the Toronto fans leaving the stadium and maybe a couple hundred of us just gathering around and cheering and seeing this trophy presentation. I saw maybe 10 Milwaukee, I think I counted, I saw 10 Milwaukee fans the entire night. And uh, the Toronto fans, I gotta, I gotta hand it to you. Um, wow. At, at one point, at one point, so there was 20,000 people in the stadium and 10 uh, Milwaukee fans. And at one point, Giannis, the t- our team's best player, he airballed a free throw. I have never heard a noise so loud in my life. And I came away from there amazed at the crowd. And I actually came away thinking, there's no way, there's no way the Bucks are ever going to win in Toronto. It's just not going to happen. It, the crowd probably, I feel like the crowd gave them 20 extra points. It was amazing, the one-mindedness of the crowd. And I guess after last night, I guess I was right. There you go. You guys, you can cheer. Good job. Well, Paul's speaking to the Philippians in chapter 2 about one-mindedness, and it sounds kind of funny to see, because I saw a lot of joy last night in Toronto, and I saw a lot of joy after the game on Tuesday night. And I think for some people, I mean, I read an article today about one guy who just, he said, I never had any friends growing up, these are my friends, and he pointed to the great crowd of people. And it was interesting because another guy came up to him. He heard him give that announcement. He goes, I never had any friends either. And they hugged each other over the Raptors winning last night. And there's a lot of joy. But I think this is interesting. Paul here in Philippians chapter 2 is as big a fan of the Philippians church as any we saw in Toronto. He he actually says... um, because you know, the Raptors can give their fans joy. But Paul says in, in verse 2, he actually says that the Philippians, the, the Philippian church can actually, this is an interesting phrase Paul says, and it's not actually that he's describing, he's actually, he's actually telling them, you can complete my joy. In fact, he's actually telling them, complete my joy by doing this. And Paul actually, while he's sitting in a Roman prison cell, while he's waiting to try to figure out what's going to happen to them, he's telling them, he's telling that church not only has he found joy in them, because every time he remembers them in his prayers, he prays for them with joy because of that long relationship of partnership they have had together. And so every time he thinks and prays of them, he's filled with joy. And then he not only tells them what we looked at a couple weeks ago where he says, and my joy continues to increase because I know that I'm here for the advancement of the gospel. And so my joy is increasing there as well. But he actually now here goes to say, you Philippians, you can actually help me by actually bringing me to the point where my joy would be complete in you. Paul is, in a sense, telling the Philippians, I am your biggest fan. I need no further happiness, he says. My joy will be satisfied, completed, if only I can hear of you. And last week we talked about good gossip of the church is what he's looking for. If only I can hear of you that you are standing united, one-minded. This is why I wanted you guys to like at least get a little bit closer to each other. 
<laughs> Paul's saying, I, I, this is what I want to hear in you, that you are a united church. See, last week, we looked at the last couple verses of chapter 1, and we saw that Paul had just informed the Philippians he, was, he had been wrestling early in the chapter about whether or not it would be better for him to depart and be with Christ or to remain on their behalf. And he actually says at the, uh, at the, uh, the last few verses of chapter 1, he said to them, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul, Paul's saying, he, and remember, this is what he said, when he, when he says, um, only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, what he actually says there, the word he uses is that you might live on as citizens. And so we talked about that Paul is actually saying, whether I come to you or whether I'm absent from you, this is what I long to hear of you, is that you are together now living as a community outpost as citizens of the kingdom of heaven together. Right? We talked about that the, the Philippians, uh, the, the city of Philippi was, uh, it was a Roman colony. And so it set apart the... the the residents of Philippi, the citizens of Philippi, were set apart from the Macedonians around them. And Paul's using that as the, that was the, their, their actual political reality, but he's making a statement about their spiritual reality when he says, our citizenship, later in chapter 4, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. And so he says, Philippian church, what I want to hear of you is that you are ongoing, whether I come to see you or whether I'm absent from you, that you are continuing to live as citizens, as an outpost of a greater kingdom. That's what I want to hear from you. And he said three things about it. I want to hear that you are standing firm together in the things that were laid down among you. In the teachings and the gospel that Paul had laid down in Philippi. He says, I want to hear of this church that you're standing firm. And I want to hear of this church that you're striving on. That you're continuing to advance the gospel in your city. And I want to hear that you don't, you're not scared. That you don't fear of anything the opponent or your opponents will throw at you. That's what I want to hear of you as you continue to live as an outpost. I want to hear good gossip of your church. But here in chapter 2, he goes on, there's a therefore, or there's a so, as we translated in the ESV. There's a so then that starts out chapter 2 because Paul's saying in order for you to go on living as an outpost of the kingdom of God, so that I can hear the good gossip of your standing firm and striving on and not fearing. You, this is something you guys are going to have to do together. It's something that you're going to actually have to do together. Right? There's, a, there's that saying, it was in the Old Testament, sorry, I'm just, it's off the top of my head a little bit. It was in the Old Testament, then they used it of Christ, where it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's a reality. It's a reality that in this Philippian church and possibly here at OCBC, that, that, that we might be scared of what is to come. We might be scared of what is to come. And we might be tempted to go it alone. And what Paul is actually saying to the Philippian church, at least, is to say, no, I want to hear of you, Philippi church, that you are standing firm, striving onward, not 
fearing. And in order to do that, you need to have a one-mindedness. This is what, this is what, you know, this is why I watch sports. This is why people watch sports. It's because you see a team coming together and striving together toward one common purpose. And it's not only those players on the court, then you get 20,000 of you together. And you're all striving together, cheering onward so that one purpose might be reached. And that's what Paul is. Paul is absent from the Philippian church, but he's praying for them. He's writing a letter to them. He's sending people back and forth to them. And he said, I am cheering you on. Just like none of you guys were in Toronto last night. I'm looking at some of you guys that I know like the game. None of you guys were there. But you were really excited to hear of the news of what happened. And that's what Paul's doing as he's sitting in that Roman prison. He wants to hear, and he wants to hear good gossip that you're striving on together in one-mindedness. And so in chapter 2, he talks about this one-mindedness, and we're going to do a countdown to one-mindedness. You can do it with your fingers. Four, three, two, one. Okay? Pretty easy. Four, three, two, one. A countdown to one-mindedness. The first thing Paul teaches them, or reminds them, is that there are four realities in which one-mindedness is based. There's four realities leading to this one-mindedness. Right? When he, when he tells them, when he prays for them, I, you can fill up my joy by being one-minded. You can fill up my joy by having the same mind. This is not something that is unattainable for you, the church. It's not something you can't do. It's actually something you can do because of these realities that have been given to you in Christ. And so he reminds them of these things by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any infection and sympathy, and most commentators put those last two together into, in the, in, as far as like their two words put together meaning something like heartfelt affection. Okay? So Paul's actually saying these are realities given to you in Christ. These are, these are, these are resources available to you, church. When he says... If there's any encouragement, he's not asking a rhetorical question. Or he's not asking a question. He's not like, there might be, there might not be. My Greek teacher taught me there's two ways in the Greek to say if there is, and this is the one that means if there is, and you better believe there is. Okay? So he's saying if there's any encouragement in Christ, oh, and by the way, there is. If there's any comfort of love, oh, and by the way, there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, yep, got that too. If there's any heartfelt affection, yes, we have that as well. And the first thing I want to notice before we pack each one is that the first three are actually delivered, and many commentators believe, and I think you can see this, as an allusion to the Trinity. In fact, Paul's thought here corresponds with 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which says, oh, I meant to put this up here, sorry, but I did not, but uh, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so there in, in 2 Corinthians 13, 16, 13, 14, you also have Christ, love, and participation of the Spirit. So the first three have to do with Christ, the fourth is something that we possess through our new birth. But I'll just kind of unpack them one by one. He says this, if there's any encouragement from Christ, and oh yes, I want you to believe there's encouragement in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, 
The word both in our language and in the original language can mean two things. Encouragement can mean... It can be the encouragement to lift us out of dark or hard places. I'm sure many of you guys have experienced that sort of encouragement before when you've been down and, uh, and someone has, has actually lifted you up out of that hard place, out of that dark place. And then it could be the encouragement to spur you on. Right? You see this in both ways. That, Like, for example, the game. You see that the team's going down, the crowd starts riling up, they get ready to go. Right? You see it, you see it also that they're spurring them on to go on even further. And that's the encouragement that we have in Christ. Christ meets us. I pray that every single person in this room has met Jesus Christ in a dark place in their life. That's often when His presence is made most real to us is when we are in the valley. When you were sinking and you called out to the Lord and He heard your cry and He lifted you out of that pit. Whether it was you were striving with the darkness of your own soul, having seen your sin, having understood that you have sinned against a holy God and fallen short of His glorious standard for your life. I knew when I was 16 years old I didn't even meet my own standards, much less a holy God's. It may be that you've struggled against sin. It may be that you've struggled in despair. And Christ has met you there. I pray that for every single person in this room, at some point in their life, they have come to the end of their rope and they have found Christ there. And if you have not, let me tell you, He's there. He's there for you. Like He'll meet you there. You can actually, this is the word used to talk about calling out to Christ in faith. You can cry out to Him. He's faithful. And I pray for every single person in this room when you've been discouraged in your walk of faith that Christ has beckoned you on. That He's called you forward. That He's given you new strength and encouragement to go on. And Paul talks about later in the book, he talks about this upward, upward call, this upward goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And he says, listen, brothers and sisters, I haven't attained it yet. I haven't attained it yet, but this is what I do. I continue pressing on toward the goal of the high call of Christ Jesus. And I could just see like in, in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says, so we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And I could just see Christ encouraging us, calling us on, cheering us on that we might press on in our faith. He meets us in the dark places and he keeps us pressing on toward his call. Secondly, Paul says this is a reality for those of us who know Christ. We've received comfort from His love. He says, is there any comfort from love? Yes, of course there's comfort from love. There's comfort for the believer of resting in peace in the love of God. This is an assured experience of knowing that God is your Father. That though we could do nothing to earn or deserve His love or acceptance, 
that he's demonstrated his love for us in this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us sinners in our place. And to know that before we loved God, he loved us. Because God, in fact, is love and he calls us into a relationship of love through Christ. And that this love you can rest. If, if you've ever been in a relationship where you have felt that you've had to earn someone's love, whether it be a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend, if you've ever been in a relationship where you felt you had to earn that person's love, you know how exhausting that is. You know how painful that is. Anytime you let them down, you might have to do something to get back into their good graces and earn their love again. To those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we might be called children of God and that is who we are. And that love does not fail. It's the Hesed covenantal love of God. If we are truly in Christ, He loves us in Christ. Our position is in Christ. If God is for us, who could be against us? It can't happen. And we can rest. There is a Sabbath rest to stop striving and rest in the love of God. Paul later in this book calls it the peace that surpasses understanding. And so, and so if Christ is there to meet us in the valley and to keep us, cheering us on, and if the love of God is there to be found and to be rested in peacefully, and then Paul goes on to say, and if we have any partnership or participation in the Spirit of God. Again, this is a reality that we share. The, the shared life and common resources available to all who possess and are possessed by the Spirit of God. This is all the Holy Spirit grants us together as the church. That the same Spirit who is in me is in you and is in you and is in you. I have before in my life, this is the craziest thing and it doesn't happen often, but I have before in my life come up or had a complete stranger come up to me in fact, I was in a Chinese, was it called Lotteria? It was like a Chinese fast food restaurant. You guys maybe can help me out. It's a Chinese fast food restaurant uh, at the train station in Beijing. I was just sitting there, and this guy comes up to me and he says, are you a Christian? And there's hundreds of people around. I said, why would you ask? Yes, I am. And he said, I could just see something was there. And I, I believe that was the Spirit of God. And we had a great time of fellowship. And for those who are believers, we have all that the Spirit gives available to us. And we, we have it all together. That means we each have the power to continue on in unity. I, I don't know about you, but I find this very, very important in, like, for example, marriage. The book of Malachi says he's made the two one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And I know that I don't have the power in myself to be a selfless husband. I know I don't. And 
Thankfully, when I yield myself to the Spirit of God, He guides and leads. You know this in the church. You know this with your friends. I've, I've had conflict with friends where I was really scared to go and have a, con- a talk with them. And, and you know this point where you just simply pray because you say, God, I can do nothing to resolve this conflict. Lord, I pray you change my heart and you change their heart. And you go as you go to talk to them, you find the spirit, the same spirit that's been working to soften your heart is the same spirit that's been working to soften their heart. And you come together again. And what Paul's saying is, Philippians, you have these resources available to you to live in one-minded unity as the church. You have Jesus Christ meeting you in the dark place when you're, not, when you're, you're in your bed and you can't get out of your bed because you don't want to see anybody. You have Jesus Christ meeting you there, comforting you there, and calling you out and spurring you on and cheering you on so you can go and be meeting with your brothers and sisters. You have the love of God when you're scared because you've been taught your whole life that you have to earn someone else's love or acceptance. And now you know, I don't have to earn God's. I can actually go and be who he's created me to be in front of him. And I can do that in community with others because of him. And then you realize the same spirit that's in me, that's softening my heart, that's sanctifying me, that's changing me from within, is the same spirit at work in these people as well. And we may not have yet attained perfection in any of these things. But one thing we do, we keep on striving on. And the fourth thing that Paul says are realities in our life are the heartfelt affections that the Holy Spirit produces in us through, by virtue of the new birth. The book of John says that if you have the love of God in you, you will love the brethren. If you don't love the brethren, how can you say you love God? That by virtue of the new birth, by being God's child, His love, He is love, and, and He produces and effects His love through us. And our heart changes toward our brothers and sisters. And so Paul's saying if these four fundamental realities are true of every Christian, then God has given you, he's given me, he's given us everything we need to walk forward together. So that's the grounds, that's the basis by which he gives his actual imperative, his command to the church. Where he says to them in chapter 2, verse 2, Because of all these realities, because the the spirit of the triune God working in your spirit, you you guys can fill up my joy because I want to see you continuing to walk forward in one-mindedness. Now, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Kind of seems redundant, doesn't it? It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by having one mind at the end, right? And I think what he's actually doing here is he's giving three elements to our one-mindedness because it is one thing. It is one thing that we go to church, and, and sometimes we can do this. We can go to church and think, because we all signed the same statement of faith, we all are one-minded, right? Because we all believe the same things about Jesus, We can have a one-minded unity. And sometimes we say that. That is, the truths of the Christian gospel are what unite us. But it's not that easy. And if you've been in a church for a while, you know it's not that easy because you might be here. You might be here this morning. I know because I've talked to some of you. 
That you're here among us and you're saying, I've never experienced this one-mindedness community in church. Why can I go to a Raptors game and everybody's like hugging each other, complete strangers, cheering with each other, and I go to church and I don't know the people next to me? It's because the one-mindedness that Paul is talking about here is more than just, I go to a church where everybody believes the same things with me. He's saying this is going to take more of you. It is going to require more of you. Right? It is a one-mindedness that Paul is calling to them to complete his joy. Complete my joy by being of one mind, of the same mind. But, but then he goes on to describe this, and it is going to take the totality of your being, being open toward this one-mindedness and community. He says it's going to take your heart. This is at least how we would say it in the West. Like in Hebrew, they would talk about the, the organs, you know, like the splunk now. But he'd say, it's going to take all your heart. You're going to need to have the same love with one another. He goes on to say the second part, which is in ESV, it says being in full accord. It's a weird word in Greek. In Greek, it's two words put together. It's soon, which means together, and it's suke, which means soul. So he says, you're going to need to be together souled. I don't even know what that means. But, But I do know he's pointing to something deep within the recesses of your heart that says deep calls to deep. What is in you must actually call out to what is in your brother. So you're going to have the same heart with one another. You're actually going to have the same soul with one another. And then you're going to have the same mind and beliefs and attitudes with one another. In short, what Paul's saying is this is going to actually take all of your being. It's going to be hard to actually devote yourself to this. And, and this is why Paul says, my joy isn't there with you yet. Because you haven't yet attained to this. And it's my This is my hope for you, that I might hear that you would be attaining to this, giving and devoting the entirety of your heart, soul, and mind to this one-mindedness that will complete my joy. Okay? This is what he's saying here. Everything in you, devote yourself to one another. And when I hear that, when I hear you growing and maturing in that, that is is what's going to complete my joy. I want to see it in you. Third, he puts it very clearly and practically right in front of us. There's two alternatives each of us need to choose as we gather together in community with one another. There's two choices. I say daily, these are confronting us. They may confront us hour to hour or even sometimes you walk out of your Sunday school room and you got to make another confrontation about this choice before you get into the sanctuary. <laughs> right? You're like, I got through Sunday school making the right choice, but now I walked in here and oh no, i got to make that choice again. And the two choices are are very simply either just self first or others first. One is the path of the elevation of self, and the other is the path of the elevation of others. He writes in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. There's something here about Christian community that the health and the maturity of our Christian community and therefore the joy that we produce through our Christian community comes down to the simple choices that we make in the day-to-day. 
All right, do you see what's happening here? There's, there's Paul saying, this is all the, all the resources that God has given you. All of these are at your disposal to actually promote unity among you. And it's going to take all of your being, heart, soul, and mind, to go after these things. But it comes down to the simple choices that you make. Do you put yourself first or do you put others first? It's, a, it's an interesting word Paul uses there, the, the selfish ambition. The conceit word is the word vain glory. Are you seeking empty glory or are you setting others as more significant you're seeing the glory in others and you're setting the glory of others first paul brings it down to the level of choices what are you going to do when you get out of bed what are you going to do when you walk through these doors what are you going to do when you have a choice between and this is like my own self i really struggle with this what are you going to do when you when you have a chance to text someone to just say, how are you doing? And what are you going to do when they text you and respond? And what are you going to do when you have a free night and you could, you could call up somebody and say, hey, brother, let's go out, right? Or, or I noticed on Sunday you, weren't doing, you didn't seem like you were doing well. Let's get together. You guys are going to have to minister to one another, and ministering to one another comes through small day-to-day choices. When I get done finished speaking, you guys will have to make a choice. Who do I go up to and introduce myself to? Who do I go up to and say, hey man, I can see you're down. Can, can I pray for you? Or, or who do I go up to and say, hey sister, you know, how are you doing this week? Is there any way I can be praying for you? It's those small, everyday little choices that we make. Putting others first. Inviting people over to our house. Going and praying for one another. Making time for one another. Every day making hundreds of choices to live for your own vain glory, and we know something about vanity after having studied Ecclesiastes, or to raise and build up others. Man, can you imagine a John the Baptist mentality for every other individual in the church? They must increase and I must decrease. It's not that we're doormats. It's that we love to see the glory in others that God has created for them revealed. And finally, and this is the part that... I was really wondering about whether I should just put this into next week. Finally, there's, there's just one model. And actually, this is the part where we normally skip to when we get to this passage because it's such a beautiful passage, beautiful picture of this model of our mindset in Christ. Right? It's the one that you guys probably memorized at some point in Sunday school. Right? But, but first, I want you to notice before we get into this, look at verse 2. Point, uh, number, verse 5 where Paul says, this is the mindset. You th- see, he's gone four verses He's gone four verses saying, I, I really hope you have the same mind, and I really hope you're in one mind. And he keeps on saying that in four verses. And it takes him till verse four, five where he actually says, here it is. This is the mindset I want you to have among yourselves. And it's interesting in the Greek, just like in the English, if he says, I, I want you to have this mindset in yourselves, it can mean two things, and Paul probably means both. It means that you must, because he talked to you already about the individual choices you must make, it means you yourself individually must have this mind. But as we come together in Christ, if we all corporately are coming, individually having this mindset, then together this mindset will be among us. And here is the mindset. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God's exalted him, highly exalted him, 
and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I talked about the millions of choices, the hundreds of choices you probably make every day to put yourself first or other first. In this hymn, we think it's probably an early Christian hymn. We're not sure, but many think that. But in this hymn, it actually speaks of two choices that the Son of God has made. Two choices that the second person of the Trinity has made. The first choice was a choice to serve. The second choice is a choice to sacrifice. Sacrificial service is what we are called to. This is the mindset that we're called to have. Simply put, sacrificial service. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. I pray, Paul says, that you might fill up my joy, that I might hear good gossip, that whether I come to see you or am absent from you, I might see and hear of this in you. You are one-minded in sacrificial service of one another. That's, that's what, who, he, who Jesus is. The first, three, the first choice mirrors the second choice. The first choice the eternal Christ made was to empty himself. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider it... How, how does the ESV put it? I, I memorized it in a different translation. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So, so the idea is he had this the second person of the God had this, had this divine position in his possession. And he did not consider that a thing to be clasped or to, to be clung on to. But he set it aside. The first choice the eternal Christ made was to empty himself of his divine position and glory to be born among us as one of us. He, he, he never... Some people, sometimes we put it like this way, where he set aside his divinity. He never set aside his divinity, all right? He was still as much God when he was here as much as he was before he incarnated. Yet what he did was he assumed to himself humanity, which means he added humanity onto himself, and by adding humanity onto himself, he actually veiled his deity in a way. Let me give you an example. How many people are going to see the Aladdin movie? Anyone? Oh, I got a couple people who are interested to see the Aladdin movie. How many saw the Aladdin movie when you were a kid? All right, more people have seen the yeah. There you go. More people have seen the Aladdin movie when you were a kid. I just remember the first scene where Jasmine, Jasmine, Le- Jasmine's the princess, right? Where Jasmine leaves the castle, and she does this thing that often happens in fairy tales, where she leaves the castle and puts on the clothes of a common person, so she could walk among the markets. So she could see and experience what life was like outside of the castle. And in putting on those clothes, she, in a sense, is setting aside. She's not giving up, but she's setting aside for the moment. She's setting aside that that divine position, or for her, the sovereign position she would have as the ruler. As Ray Stedman puts it, when Jesus entered this world, stepping out of eternity into time, he could not empty himself of his deity. That needs to be made clear. What he could and did do was empty himself of every expression of deity. He did not come to manifest, he did not come to manifest what God was like. He came to show us what man ought to be. He did not give up his rights as God. He gave up his right to enjoy the rights 
of God. That's the choice of incarnation. It's not that Jesus becomes less divine, but in adding our humanity to himself, he veils his divinity and comes among us not as a God, but as a servant. Right? We talk this day about privilege. About checking your privilege, acknowledging your privilege, like that's something people say. In a sense, you could, I, I think it may be appropriate to say Jesus as God existed in the most privileged position in the entire universe. He couldn't change his substance. He couldn't change his nature. But what he did was he set aside his privilege as God. And he lived among us as one of us, as a servant. This is one of the things Jesus taught about and he loved to teach about was his servant nature. This, you know, glorying and his favorite description of himself was the son of man. And one time there was a dispute in Luke 22, a dispute arose among his disciples as to which of them was to be guarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not to be with you. And when by with you he's speaking to the disciples and through them to the church. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader become as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Isn't it the one who reclines at the table? But I come among you as one who serves. Jesus is telling him, this is what you must be. If you want to lead, you've got to get lower. I once had a, had a summer camp. At a summer camp, I had this leader. I really looked up to him because I was like a, a dumb high school student. He was this really cool college guy, right? And we all wanted to be him. And I remember we were walking from the gym to the cafeteria, and there's a piece of trash on the ground, and all he did was he, he just stood down, picked it up, and put it in his pocket. And I talked to him about that later. I was like, man, that was, that, why'd you do that? And he said this verse. He said, to the one who leads must become a servant. You, you must become willing. And he, and he told me, he actually said, Dan, unless you're willing to bend down and pick up the piece of trash and carry it around with you for a while, you won't be a leader. So Jesus' first choice he made was the choice to serve. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who made, though he was in the position of God, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that a thing to be clung onto, but set it aside emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant and joining us. The second choice Jesus made was in his redemptive death, the choice to sacrifice. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His redemptive death, giving his one life to save others, giving all. I talked earlier about the three elements of our lives, this, this, this heart, soul, and mind. Jesus held nothing back. He gave it all for us. And therefore, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This idea in Scripture that the one who is lower is the one who will be exalted. Jesus said, therefore, who humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says in Matthew, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
when he, when he told them to take the lowest place when you're a guest at the banquet, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. About the Pharisee and the tax collector, the, the Pharisee who said, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. And then the other guy said, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the guy who went home justified, not the other. Peter picked up on this common refrain of Jesus' teaching. Peter and James both say in their letters to the churches, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the mindset of Christ. That though he was in very nature God, did not consider it something to be clung on to, but he set that aside. He came among us as a servant and he took that servanthood even to its furthest obedience, which was death on a cross in his sacrifice. And therefore God has exalted him. This is the end for which we strive together as a church in one-mindedness. This is the mindset we are to have. And the goal of this among us, see, it only gets to the goal of this whole entire passage only in verse 10 and 11. Because this is the goal of Christ, and if we have the same mind, this is our goal, to exalt Christ and to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's what Paul's saying. This is what I want to hear from you. This is what I pray for you. This is what would fill up my joy and make it complete more than any Toronto Raptors game. That I could hear of you that you are exalting Christ and you are glorifying God, and how are you doing that? By having this mindset of Christ. By serving one another in love. By making those choices every day, and when you're together, making those choices to love, to serve, and to sacrifice for one another.